Chapter Twenty Two of Unleavened Bread. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Unleavened Bread by Robert Grant. Chapter Twenty Two. Her morning and the slow convalescence of Mister Parsons deprived Selma of convincing evidence in regard to her social reception in Benham, for those socially prominent were thus barred from inviting her to their houses and her own activities were correspondingly fettered indeed her circumstances supplied her with an obvious salve for her proper dignity had she been disposed to let suspicion lie fallow as it was a number of people had left cards and sent invitations notwithstanding they could not be accepted and she might readily have believed had she chosen and had she professed openly to mr parsons that every one had been uncommonly civil and appreciative she found herself however in spite of her declared devotion to her serious duties noting that the recognition accorded to mr parsons and herself was not precisely of the character she craved the visiting cards and invitations were from people residing on the river drive and in that neighbourhood indeed but from people like the flags for instance who having acquired large wealth and erected lordly dwellings were eager to dispense good-natured lavish hospitality without social experience her sensitive ordeal in new york had quickened her social perceptions so that whereas at the time of her departure from benham as mrs littleton she regarded her present neighborhood as an integral class and she was now prompt to separate the sheep from the goats and to remark that only the goats seemed conscious of her existence with the exception of mrs taylor who had called when she was out not one of a certain set the outward manifestations of whose stately being were constantly passing her windows appeared to take the slightest interest in her strictly speaking mrs taylor was of this set yet apart from it hers was the exclusive intellectual and aesthetic set this the exclusive fashionable set both alike exorable and foreign to the traditions of benham now selma had discovered the one and declared war against it so she promised herself to confound the other when the period of her mourning was over and she was free to appear again in society once more she congratulated herself that she had come in time to nip in the bud this other offshoot of aristocratic tendencies as yet either set was small in number and she foresaw that it would be an easy task to unite in a solid phalanx of offensive defensive influence the friendly souls whom these people treated as outsiders and purged the society atmosphere of the miasma of exclusiveness in connection with the means to this end when the winter slipped away and left her feeling that she had been ignored and that she was eager to assume a commanding position she began to take more than passing thought of the attention of mr lyons that he was interested by her there could be no doubt for he plainly went out of his way to seek her society calling at the house from time to time and exercising a useful nattering superintendence over her lecture course in the other cities of the state in each of which he appeared to have friends on the newspaper press who put agreeable notice in print concerning her performance she had returned to benham believing that her married life was over that her heart was in the grave with wilbur and that she would never again part with her independence the notice which Mr. Lyons had taken of her from the outset had gratified her, but though she contrasted his physical energy with Wilbur's lack of vigor, it had not occurred to her to consider him in the light of a possible husband. Now that a year had passed since Wilbur's death, she felt conscious once more, as had happened after her divorce, of the need of a closer and more individual sympathy 
than any at her command. Her relations with Mr. Parsons, to be sure, approximated those of father and daughter, but his perceptions were much less acute than before his seizure. He talked little and ceased to take a vital interest in current affairs. She felt the lack of companionship and also of personal devotion, such personal devotion as was afforded by the strenuous, ardent allegiance of a man. On the other hand, she was firmly resolved never to allow the current of her own life to be turned away again by the subordination of her purposes to those of any other person, and she had believed that this resolution would keep her indifferent to marriage, in spite of any sensations of loneliness or craving for masculine idolatry. But as a widow of a year's standing, she was now suddenly interested by the thought that this solid, ambitious, smooth-talking man might possibly satisfy her natural preference for a mate without violating her individuality. She began to ask herself if he were not truly congenial in a sense which no man had ever been to her before, also to ask if their aspirations and aims were not so nearly identical that he would be certain as her husband to be proud of everything that she said and did, and to allow her to work hand in hand with him for the furtherance of their common purpose. She did not put these questions to herself until his conduct suggested that he was seeking her society as a suitor, but having put them, she was pleased to find her heart throb with the hope of a stimulating and dear discovery. Certain causes contributed to convince her that this hope rested on a sure foundation, causes associated with her present life and point of view. She felt confident, first of all, of the godliness of Mr. Lyons, as indicated not only by his sober, successful life and his enthusiastic, benignant patriotism, but by his active, reverent interest in the affairs of his church, the Methodist Church, to which Mr. Parsons belonged, and which Selma had begun to attend since her return to Benham. It had been her mother's faith, and she had felt a certain filial glow in approaching it, which had been fanned into pious flame by the affection of the ministration. The fervent hymns and the opportunities for bearing testimony at some of the services appealed to her needs, and gave her a sense of oneness with eternal truth, which had hitherto been lacking from her religious experience. In judging Wilbur, she was disposed to ascribe the defects of his character largely to the coldness and analyzing sobriety of his creed. She had accompanied him to church listlessly, and had been bored by the unemotional appeals to conscious and quiet subjective designations of duty. She preferred to thrill with the intensity of words which now roundly rated sin, now passionately called to mind the ransom of the Savior, and ever kept prominent the stirring mission of evangelizing ignorant foreign people. It appeared probable to Selma that, as a wife of one of the leading church members, who was the chairman of the local committee charged with spreading the gospel abroad, her capacity for doing good would be strengthened, and the spiritual availability of both of them enhanced. Then, too, Mr. Lyons's political prospects were flattering. The thought that a marriage with him would put her in a position to control the social tendencies of Benham was alluring. As the wife of Honorable James O. Lyons, member of Congress, she believed that she would be able to look down on and confound those who had given her the cold shoulder. What would Flossie say when she heard it? What would Pauline? This was a form of distinction which would put her beyond the reach of conspiracy and exclusiveness for as the wife of a representative selected by the people to guard their interests and make their laws would not her social position be unassailable and apart from these considerations a political future seemed to her 
peculiarly attractive. Was not this the real opportunity for which she had been waiting? Would she be justified in giving it up? In what better way could her talents be spent than as the helpmate and intellectual companion of a public man, a statesman, devoted to the protection and development of American ideas? Her own individuality need not, would not be repressed. She had seen enough of Mr. Lyons to feel sure that their views on the great questions of life were thoroughly in harmony. They held the same religious opinions. Who could foretell the limit of their joint progress? He was still a young man, strong, dignified, and patriotic, endowed with qualities which fitted him for public service. It might well be that a brilliant future was before him, before them, if she were his wife, if he were to become prominent in the councils of the nation, Speaker of the House, Governor, even President within the bounds of possibility. What a splendid congenial scope his honors would afford her own versatility. As day by day she dwelt on these points of recommendation, Selma became more and more disposed to smile on the aspirations of Mr. Lyons in regard to herself, and to feel that her life would develop to the best advantage by a union with him. Until the words asking her to be his wife were definitely spoken, she could not be positive of his intentions. But his conduct left little room for doubt, and moreover was marked by a deferential soberness of purpose, which indicated to her that his views regarding marriage were on a higher plane than those of any man she had known. He referred frequently to the home as the foundation on which American civilization rested, and from which its inspiration was largely derived and spoke feelingly of the value to a public man of a stimulating and dignifying fireside. It became his habit to join her after morning service, and to accompany her home, carrying her hymn-books, and he sent her from time to time through the post quotations which had especially struck his fancy from the speeches he was collecting for his watchwords of patriotism. Another six months passed, and at its close Lyons received the expected nomination for Congress. The election promised to be close and exciting. Both parties were confident of victory, and were preparing vigorously to keep their adherents at fever pitch by rallies and torchlight processions. Although the result of the caucus was not doubtful, it was understood between Lyons and Selma that he would call at the house that evening to let her know that he had been successful. She was waiting to receive him in the library. Mr. Parsons had gone to bed. His condition was not promising. He had recently suffered another slight attack of paralysis, which seemed to indicate that he was liable at any time to a fatal seizure. Lyons entered smilingly. So far, so good, he exclaimed. Then you have won? Oh, yes, as I told you, it was a foregone conclusion. Now the fight begins. Selma, who had provided a slight reflection, handed him a cup of tea. I feel sure that you will be chosen, she said. See if I am not right. When is the election? In six weeks, six weeks from tomorrow. Then will you go to Washington to live? Not until the 4th of March. I envy you. If I were a man, I should prefer success in politics to anything else. He was silent for a moment. Then he said, Will you help me to achieve success? Will you go with me to Washington as my wife? His courtship had been formal and elaborate, but his declaration was signally simple and to the point. Selma noticed that the cup in his hand trembled. While she kept her eyes lowered, as women are supposed to do at such moments, she was wondering whether she loved him as much as she had loved Wilbur. Not so ardently, but more worthily, she concluded, for he seemed to her to fulfill her maturer ideal 
of strong and effective manhood, and to satisfy alike her self-respect and her physical fancy. A man of his type would not split hairs, but proceed straight toward the goal of his ambition, without fainting or wavering. Why should she not satisfy her renewed craving to be yoked to a kindred spirit and companion who appreciated her true worth? "'I cannot believe,' he was saying, "'that my words are a surprise to you. You can scarcely have failed to understand that I admire you extremely. I have delayed to utter my desire to make you my wife because I did not dare to cherish too fondly the hope that the love inspired in me could be reciprocated, and that you would consent to unite your life with mine and trust your happiness to my keeping. If I may say so, we are no boy and girl. We understand the solemn significance of marriage, and what it imports, and what it demands. Of late I have ventured to dream that the sympathy and ideas and identity of purpose which exist between us might be the trustworthy sign of a spiritual bond, which we could not afford to ignore. I feel that without you the joy and power of my life will be incomplete. With you at my side I shall aspire to great things. You are to me the embodiment of what is charming and serviceable in a woman. Selma looked up. I like you very much, Mr. Lyons. You, in your turn, must have realized, I think, as you say, we are no boy and girl. You meant by that, too, that we both have been married before. I have had two husbands, and I did not believe that I could ever think of marriage again. I don't wish you to suppose that my last marriage was not happy. Mr. Littleton was an earnest, talented man, and devoted to me. Yet I cannot deny that in spite of mutual love, our married life was not a success. A success as a contribution to accomplishment. That nearly broke my heart, and he... He died from lack of the physical and mental vigor which would have made so much difference. I am telling you this because I wish you to realize that if I should consent to comply with your wishes, it would be because I was convinced that true accomplishment, the highest accomplishment, would result from the union of our lives as a result of our riper experience. If I did not believe, Mr. Lyons, that man and woman, as we are, no longer boy and girl, a more perfect scheme of happiness, a grander conception of the meaning of life than either of us had entertained was before us, I would not consider your offer for one moment. Yes, yes, I understand, Lyons exclaimed eagerly. I share your belief implicitly. It was what I would have said only. Despite his facility as an orator, Lyons left the sentence incomplete, in face of the ticklish difficulty of explaining that he had refrained from suggesting such a hope to a widow who had lost her husband only two years before. Yet he hastened to bridge over this ellipsis by saying, Without such a faith a union between us must fall short of its sweetest and grandest opportunities. It would be a mockery. There would be no excuse for its existence, cried Selma impetuously. I'm an idealist, Mr. Lyons, she said, clasping her hands. I believe devotedly in the mission of power and love, but I believe that our conception of love changes as we grow. I welcomed love formerly as an intoxicating, delirious potion, and as such it was very sweet. You have just told me of your own feelings toward me, so it is your right to know that lately I have begun to realize my association with you has brought peace into my life, peace and religious faith, essentials of happiness of which I have not known the blessing since I was a child. You have dedicated yourself to a lofty work. You have chosen the noble career of a statesman, statesman zealous to promote principle, and you ask me to share with you the labors and the privileges which will result from this dedication. If I accept your offer, it must be because I know that I love you, 
love you in a sense I have not loved before. May the dead pardon me. If I accept you, it will be because I wish to perpetuate that faith and peace, and because I believe that our joint lives will realize worthy accomplishment. Selma looked into space with her rapt gaze, apparently engaged in an intense mental struggle. And will you accept? You do feel that you can return my love? I cannot tell you how greatly I am stirred and stimulated by what you have said. It makes me feel that I could never be happy without you. Lyons put into his speech all his solemnity and all his emotional beneficence of temperament. He was genuinely moved. His first marriage had been a love match. His wife, a mere girl, had died within a year, so soon that the memory of her was a tender but hazy sentiment rather than a formulated impression of character. By virtue of this memory, he had approached marriage again as one seeking a companion for his fireside and a comely, sensible woman to preside over his establishment and promote his social status, rather than one expecting to be possessed by or to inspire a dominant passion. Yet he too regarded himself distinctly as an idealist, and he had lent a greedy ear to Selma's suggestion that mature mutual sympathy and comradeship in establishing convictions and religious aims were the source of a nobler type of love than that associated with early matrimony. It increased his admiration for her, and gave to his courtship the touch of idealism, which, partly owing to his own modesty, as a man no longer in the flush of youth, it had lacked. He nervously stroked his beard with his thick hand, and gave himself up to the spell of this vision of blessedness, while he eagerly watched Selma's face and waited for her answer. To combine moral purpose and love in a pervasive alliance appealed to him magnetically as a religious man. Selma, as she faced Lyons, was conscious necessarily of the contrast between him and her late husband, but she was attuned to regard his coarse physical fiber as masculine vigor and a protest against aristocratic delicacy, and to derive comfort and exultation from it. Mr. Lyons, she said, I will tell you frankly that the circumstances of married life have hitherto hampered the expression of that which is in me, and confined the scope of my individuality within narrow and uncongenial limits. I am not complaining. I have no intention to rake up the past, but it is proper you should know that I believe myself capable of larger undertakings than have yet been afforded me, and worthy of ampler recognition than I have yet received. If I accept you as a husband, it will be because I feel confident that you will give my life the opportunity to expand and that you sympathize with my desire to express myself adequately, and to labor hand in hand, side by side, with you, in the important work of the world. That is what I would have you do, Selma, because you are worthy of it, and it is your right. On that understanding, it seems that we might be very happy. I am certain of it. You fill my soul with gladness, he cried, and seizing her hand, he pressed it to his lips and covered it with kisses. But she withdrew it, saying, Not yet. Not yet. The step represents so much to me. It means that if I am mistaken in you, my whole life will be ruined, for the next years should be my best. We must not be too hasty. There are many things to be thought of. I must consider Mr. Parsons. I cannot leave him immediately, if at all, for he is very dependent on me. I had thought of that. While Mr. Parsons lives, I realize that your first duty must be to him. The reverential gravity of his tone was in excess of the needs of the occasion, and Selma understood that he intended to imply that Mr. Parsons would not long need her care. The same thought was in her own mind, and it had occurred to her in the course of her previous cogitations in regard to Lyons that in the event of his death it would suit her admirably to continue to occupy the house as its real mistress. 
She looked grave for a moment in her turn. Then, with a sudden access of coyness, she murmured, I do not believe that I am mistaken in you. Ah, he cried, and would have folded her in his arms, but she evaded his onset and said with her dramatic intonation, The knights of old won their lady-loves by brilliant deeds. If you are elected a member of Congress, you may come to claim me. Reflection served only to convince Selma of the wisdom of her decision to try matrimony once more. She argued that though a third marriage might theoretically seem repugnant, if stated as a bald fact, the actual circumstances in her case not merely exonerated her from a lack of delicacy, but afforded an exhibition of progress, a gradual evolution in character. She felt light-hearted and triumphant at the thought of her impending new importance as the wife of a public man, and she interested herself exuberantly in the progress of the political campaign. She was pleased to think that her stipulation had given her lover a new spur to his ambition, and she was prepared to believe that his victory would be due to the exhaustive efforts to win which the cruel possibility of losing her obliged him to make. This was a campaign era of torchlight processions. The rival factions expressed their confidence and enthusiasm by parading at night in a series of battalions armed with torches, some resplendently flaring, some glittering gaily through colored glass, and bearing transparencies inscribed with trenchant sentiments. The houses of their adherents along the route were illuminated from attic to cellar with rows of candles, and the atmosphere wore a dusky glow of red and green fire. To Selma all this was entrancing. She reveled in it as an introduction to the more conspicuous life which she was about to lead. She showed herself a zealous and enthusiastic partisan, shrouding the house in the darkness of Erebus on the occasion when the rival procession passed the door and imparting to every window the effect of a blaze of light on the following evening, the night before election, when the Democratic Party made its final appeal to the voters. Standing on a balcony in evening dress, in company with Mrs. Earle and Miss Luella Bailey, whom she had invited to view the procession from the river drive, some looked down on the parade in an ecstatic mood. The torches, the music, the fireworks, and the enthusiasm set her pulses astir, and brought her heart into her mouth, in melting appreciation of the sanctity of her party cause and her own enviable destiny as the wife of an American congressman. She held in one hand a flag which she waved from time to time at the conspicuous features of the procession, and she stationed herself so that the Bengal lights and other fireworks set off by Mr. O. Lyons' cadets, the special body of youthful torchbearers devoted to advertising the merits of her lover, for whose uniforms and accoutrements he had paid, came in sight. They proved to be the most flourishing-looking organization in line, they were preceded by a large, natalie-attired drum corps. Their ranks were full, their torches lustrous, and they bore a number of transparencies, setting forth the predominant qualifications of the candidate for Congress from the second district, the largest of which presented his portrait, superscribed with the sentiment, A vote for James O. Lyons is a vote in support of the liberties of the plain people. On the opposite end of the canvas was the picture of the King of Beasts, with open jaws and bristling mane with the motto, Our Lions might well keep our institutions sacred. In the midst of this glittering escort, the candidate himself rode in an open barouche on his way to the hall where he was to deliver a final speech. He was bowing to right and left, and constant cheers marked his progress along the avenue. Selma leaned forward from the balcony to obtain the earliest sight of her hero. The rolling applause was a new, intoxicating music in her ears, and filled her soul with transport. She clapped her hands vehemently, seized a Roman candle, and amid a blaze of fiery sparks exploded its colored stars in the direction of the approaching carriage. 
Then, with the flag slanted across her bosom, she stood waiting for his recognition. It was made solemnly, but with the unequivocal demonstration of a cavalier or knight of old, for Lyons stood up, and doffing his hat toward her, made a conspicuous salute. A salvo of applause suggested to Selma that the multitude had understood that he was, according to her, the homage due a lady love, and that their cheers were partly meant for her. She put her hand to her bosom with the gesture of a queen of melodrama, and culling one from a bunch of roses Lyon had sent her that afternoon, threw it from the balcony of the carriage. The flower fell almost into the lap of her lover, who clutched it, pressed it to his lips, and doffed his hat again. The episode had been visible to many, and a hoarse murmur of interested approval crowned the performance. The glance of the crowds on the sidewalk was turned upward, and someone proposed three cheers for the lady in the balcony. They were given. Selma bowed to either side in delighted acknowledgment, while the torches of the cadets waved tumultuously, and there was a fresh outburst of colored fireworks. "'I can't keep the secret any longer,' she exclaimed, turning to her two companions. "'I'm engaged to be married to Mr. Lyons.'" End of chapter 22